This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are going to tell you how to build a fire and how to keep it going. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak. Welcome back to Across the Peak, everybody. I am joined by my illustrious co-host, Mr. Rich Brown. Rich, what's going on, man? You're going on, buddy. That's what's going on. That's right. That's right. Uh, any Anything new with you, man? It's been, uh, it's been a hectic couple of weeks for me, and I haven't really... I'll be honest, man. I haven't really talked to you in a in a, a week or two. Uh, anything new? No. Uh, let's see. My lovely bride is out of town visiting some friends. Uh, my son is at college, and my other one is. I mean, I'm literally solo in the house. I, me and the dogs, we're running solo. Damn, man. Rich Brown rambling around that huge old farmhouse all by yourself. That's crazy, man. Pretty sad. Pretty sad, pretty sad. I bet it's uh, I bet it's awful quiet. Well, good quality time with the dogs, though. So uh, I am just wrapping up just a marathon of travel. I, I was gone for three weeks to one city, and then uh, I had to actually travel out to our nation's capital, out to Washington, D.C., and uh, participate. I actually I spoke at the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration headquarters on Thursday of this week So and got to Got to spend a couple of days hanging around with those guys. That was a pretty neat experience. And uh, just getting back and getting kind of settled in. Yeah, you haven't told me about how that went. It went really well, man. It was uh, it was a uh, two-day event, and one day of it was, good, like, quote-unquote, day in the life of an agent. And, uh, you know, get to go out to the shooting range and see some different things that they do and, and stuff of that nature. And the uh, second day of it, they had uh, three... We, we actually got to go to headquarters and go to the DEA museum, and uh, they had three speakers, and uh, one of them was a DEA agent, one of them uh, a supervis- supervisory special agent, one of them was a, um, an individual from the UK that they brought over to speak on a specific topic, and they brought me uh, to speak on a specific topic, and then we did a little panel with the audience after that, so uh, pretty neat experience, man. That is so cool, yeah. I'll, you'll have to tell me more about yeah, definitely will, man. Definitely will. That was a real neat thing to actually get to go to headquarters, and uh, I met some great people, and um, it, it was a good time, man. Yeah, t- uh, speaking about speaking in front of folks, you're going to be teaching at uh, our upcoming Warrior Week, right? Here in a couple of weeks, you'll be down here in Tennessee. I sure will, and probably, I'm going to be honest with you, man, probably that is going to be over and done with by the time this episode gets out, or or it'll be right around the time. So maybe this will get out before that. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. So my friend, what are you drinking today? I am having one of my all-time favorite beers right now. Uh, they just so happen to have it at my local beer store. This is a, a beer called Black Butte Porter from Deschutes Brewing out in Bend, Oregon. And this stuff seems to be making a little bit of uh, inroads in here, uh, uh, out here to the to the eastern part of the country. And 
man, I am I am enjoying accessibility to these things right now. What are you having? I'm drinking a carnivore, which my wife turned me on to. It's a um, a red table wine. I think it's from California, Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, it's actually really good. It's kind of our go-to red wine lately. Is that right, man? I am not going to lie to you. I have not probably had a glass of wine in six months or, or maybe more. Uh, I kind of go through stages. I'll, I, I've been through some stages where I'll drink a lot of wine. I'll come home and uh, have a glass of wine every night. Uh, but I, I'm definitely on a beer kick right now. I'm a few weeks ago, I got back into, uh, back into brewing my own beer and, uh, just, uh, that, that's pretty much where my head's at lately. Well, yeah. And you know, I'm a bourbon guy, but, or scotch, whatever. But I think that, uh, recently had my blood work done. And although my levels of cholesterol are good, I want to, you know, reduce that, uh, the, uh, what is it? The LDL. I want to reduce that a little bit. So with the Reservoiratrol and Cabernet Sauvignon, which is supposedly one of the best varietals for that, uh, it, it does a real good job of improving the H, was it the HD, HDL or whatever it is. So anyway, uh, and it's a tasty little little glass and got antioxidants in it, which I probably, as a, as a carnivore myself, Justin, I probably don't eat enough fruits and vegetables to keep most humans alive. So anything I can do to get more antioxidants in me is probably a good thing. Yeah, well, you are actually an omnivore, my friend. Uh, but uh, We said we were going to do this several weeks ago. Uh, in one of our first episodes, we said we should probably do a show about the health benefits of uh, responsible alcohol consumption. I would love to do that. I, I Let's get that on the calendar, on the editorial calendar, because that's going to force me into doing a little bit of research on it. And I'm definitely interested in what you have to say about the topic as well, because I know uh, there are some health benefits to, to drinking responsibly. And obviously there's some major downsides to drinking irresponsibly or in an uncontrolled manner, but I I'd love to have a discussion about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll save all the cool stuff I got to say about it until we have the show. I think people will find it pretty interesting. Um, let's see. So today's topic, brother, I am really stoked about it's, um, no pun intended. Yeah. Hey, look at that. That's awesome. I didn't even intend that, but anyway, <laughs> no, uh, we're going to talk about how to build a fire or humans interaction with fire or something like that, right? Yeah, we are, we are going to talk about how to build a fire. And to some of you, this may seem like a silly topic, uh, to some of you, to some of you, it may seem like a silly topic because you're like, of course I know how to build a fire. I'm a competent, and dangerous individual. I don't need to be told how to make a fire. Some of you, this is going to seem silly because you're going to say, I live in an apartment with electric heat. Why in the hell do I need to know how to build a fire? Uh, but I'll just tell you, I have known people that you would think should know how to build a fire that, uh, that, that just don't. Uh, there's one friend that I'm thinking of in specifically, in, in specifically who I went to stay at his house in the mountains in winter and he and his wife had been running the electric bill up like crazy because they could not get a fire going. And he was like, Hey man, uh, not for nothing, but do you know how to build a fire? And I opened up his, uh, wood burning stove and there were three huge logs stacked in there. And underneath them, uh, were some remains of some newspapers that he had used to attempt to, uh, to light those logs with. And I said, well, there's your, there's your problem, man. And uh, I got them squared away. I taught them how to how to heat their home with that wood heat. But I think this is a thing that everybody should know how to do, man. 
Yeah, it really is. I don't care if you live uh, on a farm, and of course I've mentioned it on the podcast multiple times before, we heat our house with a wood-burning stove. But if you're a human being, it's one of those things you need to be able to do. I don't care if you live in an igloo or if you live on the plains of Africa. This is something that, that humans have been doing for, as we'll talk about this morning, you know, over a million years. Actually, but before we go into the history of fire, which I am keenly interested in, I think is going to be a fun topic, let's talk a little bit about why everybody should know how to build one. I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit here in our notes, but we just kind of be, seem to be naturally going this way. Uh, like you said, it's it's a thing that humans have known how to do uh, for thousands of years, and... My contention is that if you really need a fire, you probably need it right now. You, that's probably not the time to figure out how to start one. You may have limited uh, fire starting tools available to you. You may have limited fuel, limited tender. You probably need to get that fire going right away if you truly need it because it could be a matter of life or death, right? Yeah, and uh, if when you say it's been around for thousands of years, if by thousands you mean more than a million, then... <laughs> Yeah, you're right, and and you're right, and and one of the taglines of this sh- of this show uh, across the peak sh- could probably be when it's time to perform, the time to prepare is over, and if you don't know how to make that fire when it's time to make one, you're done. You know, it could be the end of the road for you. Yeah, and uh, you know, in a in a in a survival situation, maybe you've uh, gone hiking and fallen in some icy water. Maybe you. Uh, have just lost your way in the woods, maybe you, um, any number of situations that that could come up that basically if you get hypothermic, a fire is what's going to save you if you don't have another person and shelter uh, with you. Um, you. You need that to happen right away. There's, there's not a lot of room for error uh, in that situation because you're uh, cognitive function is going to rapidly start to decline. You're going to lose uh, fine motor skills and the ability to manipulate your fire starting tools. And just in a, let, let's take it out of the survival situation uh, scenario, uh, just in a camping, uh, just if you're going camping, it, it's really cool to be able to start that roaring fire. It provides you heat. It provides you light. It provides you company. Uh, you know, we we call it uh, we call it watching TV when we build a build a campfire, and every time we throw another log on or shift it around, we're we're changing the channel. Um, it it gives you something to boil water on if you are in a survival situation, something to cook on. It's it's one of the most basic yet universal tools that we have, and a lot of the things in our homes now are just an adaptation of fire light bulbs. Are are t- basically take the place of what we've used fire for just a couple hundred years ago. Your stove, your heat, uh, all those things are just something that fire can also perform for you. Yeah, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit because there's some interesting studies on that, w- which absolutely agree with with what you're saying. Um, when's the last time you built a fire? Uh, about two weeks ago. Um, I have, so a, a, a few things have happened this summer. I've gone camping a few times and uh, I've had the opportunity to build some fires doing that. Uh, I've also, on my other blog, revolverguy.com, I got, a few months ago, I got really into camping stoves, uh, little personal camping stoves like the Jet Boil and things like that. And I found this one stove that was, uh, it's a wood burning stove, which I think is just incredibly neat. It's excuse me, kind of a rocket stove design. So it's double walled 
and air gets pulled down from the top and recirculated back through the fire, which kind of superheats that air and actually burns up your smoke too. Um, so it's like non-smoke producing and it's incredibly hot. Uh, I built quite a few fires in that this summer, just testing that thing out and playing with it as well as, uh, as on our camping trips. What about you, man? Uh, well, just yesterday, uh, getting in, in the mindset for this show, I took, uh, my, excuse me, my, uh, ferricium, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, rods outside and, uh, lit some fires. I wanted to make sure I could do it in about three or four strikes. And then once I got all my, uh, stuff situated, I repacked it all in my survival bag and put it back in the truck. That's awesome, dude. There's rarely a month that goes by that I don't build a fire, even if it's just a real small one, uh, just, just for the sake of having done it, uh, as I'm sure you will agree with me here, but recency of experience, recency of training has a big impact on your ability to actually perform. Uh, so I could, you know, I could go to 10 years of shooting schools and then if it's 20 years between that last school and the next time I pull my gun out, I'll probably still know how to do it, but it, it's not going to be as effective or as smooth as if I had done it yesterday, that recency of experience, uh, allows you to access that skill much more readily under stress. And, uh, I, I, I try to make a habit to do this on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. I heard a guy say one time, he says, you know what shooting and milk have in common? They're both perishable. And I would say the same for starting a fire. Uh, if you haven't done it in a while, and I'm not talking about taking out a big lighter and, and, lighting up some newspaper i'm talking about building a fire with with a tender bundle and and some sparks right yeah man i absolutely i i could not agree with you more on that on on recency of experience uh de- skill degradation over time this is something you've you've got to actually get out and do and you've got to actually practice it every now and then so before we before we go any further into this i am keenly interested uh to talk about the history of fire so why don't you take us into that man well, I think, you know, our ancestors' ability to master fire was probably the most important turning point for us as a species, both physically, culturally, etc. I mean, that, that to me is, if you think about all the human experience of the last millions of years, something as simple as being able to master fire was, I mean, unbelievable, right? Yeah, definitely, man. It was a total, total game changer, and it had all these big second and third order effects that, that probably aren't apparent on the surface. They're, they're not. And, you know, some of the literature I was looking at preparing for the show said that Homo erectus was probably the first human beings that have been proven to master fire. And I saw several different dates. I'm going to settle on 1.4 million years ago. And what those new discoveries tell us about uh, humans is that, um, well, I don't want to argue about the date. Let, let's just call it a million years back because there's like five or six different studies. But if you look at um, the, the, the flickering of the light, the crackling sounds, the warmth, the distinctive smell, every single one of these things had something, some sort of advantage. And, and even the, um, the crackling sounds, as we'll talk about in a minute, provided us with a significant advantage. One of the things that I didn't think about until reading this is fire extended the length of the day. I mean, we've talked about it in our sleep episode, Justin, how, you know, the um, the circadian rhythm, right? The rhythm of the day, you know, the, the, the sun rises and the sun sets. Well, 
by having the ability to control fire, we were able to increase our productive hours. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, I, I have not, man. And that's something that seems so simple now that you say it, that uh, it, it's hard to imagine that not being, the. <laughs> it's hard to imagine not having thought of that. But yeah, I, I can totally see how that just completely altered humanity through that one simple thing of being able to uh, to mend your clothes and and chip your stone tools and and whatever at night, you have a much longer day thanks to that. Yeah, I didn't. I hadn't thought of that either. And one of the other things fire did it was improve human uh, mortality, and it did it in a lot of really uh, significant ways. And some that, like you said, are not readily apparent on the surface. Do you know what animal kills more humans than any other animal? Uh, if if I were going to guess, I would probably say humans. Actually, uh, mosquitoes kill more than humans. I think uh, humans, on average, one of the things I saw was 400 and something thousand. But the mosquito kills more. Mosquitoes every year kill, on average, between 600,000 and 725,000 people per year. That is nuts, man. That is insane. Yeah, so the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been doing a lot to, do, to eradicate mosquitoes. Good luck with that. They, they, you know, they've been around sucking on humans and dinosaurs for hundreds of millions of years, virtually unchanged because they are just so, so perfect for what they do. But anyway, uh, fire... Yeah, so... Go so uh, let me take just a quick sidetrack. Have you seen these uh, initiatives that are basically breeding sterile mosquitoes and releasing those into the wild? And there are, I, I had not intended to talk about this at all, so I haven't looked at it recently, but there are some pretty compelling uh, studies that indicate releasing X number of sterile mosquitoes into the wild will, will actually reduce mosquito populations by some just astounding number. Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, I did read something about that. And it's like when they mate with another mosquito, that mosquito, you know, thinks it's going and uh, depositing its uh, fertilized larva into the water or whatever, and the larva's not fertilized. And it thinks it's mated and it moves on. But it hasn't, so, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then it and then it dies, and that's uh, supposedly that can have some massive outsized impact, uh, much bigger than than you or I as laymen would tend to think it could have. But uh, I don't, I'm not sure why we're not uh, <laughs> not moving full steam ahead on that. Yeah, exactly. Um, building the Panama Canal, you know, when they were building the Panama Canal, the thing that really shut that project down for for decades until somebody could figure out how to get rid of the mosquitoes because they were just laying waste to anybody that came down there to try to complete the canal. And even to this day, I've heard that that area around the Panama Canal, they did such a good job. It's almost a mosquito-free zone, which is unbelievable when you consider uh, Central America. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and you look at things like, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's Jimmy Carter's charity. His foundation is dedicated to eradicating uh, uh, some type of worm, some type of worm that you get from water. It lays its eggs in the water. People drink the water and they get this worm, which uh, sucks all their nutrients, basically kills thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people a year in Africa. And they basically completely eradicated this problem because it's real simple. All you have to do is like, basic, basic water filtration, and you'll filter out these eggs, which I guess uh, scale-wise are pretty large and, and can get caught in maybe it's something as simple as just filtering it through a cloth. But um, mosquitoes, much, much more difficult uh, problem to solve. And, and all, um, all kinds of mosquito-borne illnesses, yellow fever, uh, 
malaria. What what else do mosquitoes carry, Rich? Oh God, you know the West Nile virus. Uh, you know just about anything that you can get through a damn hypodermic needle. It seems like these days the mosquitoes are are carrying that stuff. And and so one of the things that fire did is that you know we talked about how deadly these damn mosquitoes are. One of the things that fire did is uh, it gave us smoke and smoke turns out, is a pretty good mosquito repellent, or so the literature would lend itself to it. It's a little fuzzy. I looked at some things, uh, Justin, preparing, that talked about uh, some of the studies the World Health Organization had done, but but what we do know is that certain types of smoke will repel mosquitoes, right? It's not, we can't definitively say that all smoke does, but we can say certain types, because they did a study in Papua New Guinea uh, where they use mango wood, coconut husk, ginger, and all this other stuff, and they found that those types of things do work well. Now, well, if me and you build a um, build a campfire here in East Tennessee, will will that kind of smoke work? I don't really know. And uh, anecdotally, my own experience would lend itself to saying yes. What what has your been your experience with that? Uh, you know, I I don't know, Rich. I I can't. Uh, I'll be honest. Most of the time that I build a fire, I'm trying to build the most smoke-free fire that I possibly can. Because I don't know if you've ever heard the old saying, a, a smoky fire is an inefficient fire. But I've always tried to build the most smoke-free fire that I possibly can. But emotionally, I, you know, I don't know if this has any impact in real life or not. Emotionally, I feel like if there's some smoke going off that fire, it's going to keep the mosquitoes off. But uh, all I would have to provide for that is my own anecdotal uh, reporting. Yeah, you know, the, the the most mosquito-rich environment I've ever been in, and I know it's a country that you've been in too, is the Philippines, man. The f- clouds of mosquitoes. I mean, just absolutely brutal in the mosquito netting and all the crap they give you in the Marine Corps to try to mitigate the mosquito threat and, of course, the malaria pills and all that stuff. It still didn't seem to work. What was your experience with that? <laughs> uh, yeah, there was there was almost nothing you could do to to avoid getting bitten by mosquitoes, in, uh, uh, especially in, in tropical and subtropical climates like that. Yeah, brutal. So, um, so one of the advantages, you know, it proved our human mortality because you don't have mosquitoes feeding on you. You got a smoky fire at night. Uh, it's kind of keeping them at bay. And the other thing uh, f- fire did was, you know, gave us illumination so that we could illuminate places that were previously kind of off limits to us like caves uh once we could venture down into caves that that gave us a open up a whole nother world of opportunity uh of course it facilitated cooking and and all this other stuff so uh, i want to talk about since we since i mentioned cooking let's go ahead and dive into the cooking before uh i go much further on the history here what what is what do you think about this when you think about fire and and the invention of cooking because you're a big cooking guy yeah, you and I talked about this a little bit before, but basically this allowed us to access more calorie-dense foods. Uh, some things uh, our body can digest better when they have been cooked versus raw, and, and specifically meat. And it's, I guess, I, 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 it's thought, at least in some circles, that being able to cook unlocked the ability to consume meat much more efficiently, which gave us just massively more energy to feed a much more complex brain, which basically led us to where we are now. Fire is kind of, uh, at least by some, looked as looked at as kind of the genesis of the human capability for abstraction and, and thought. 
Yeah, so absolutely. So you you imagine um, Homo erectus, you know, comes out of Africa, is roaming around the world, you know, about, uh, I don't know, close to two million years ago. He's got this amazing thing called fire. But before then, before he he got fire, his diet, his or her diet, I should say, consisted mostly of seeds and plants and uh, and other fruits. Uh, But once he could cook it, he could... eat a whole lot more diverse diet. I know you talked about meats, but I mean, just the ability to cook certain vegetables that before, you know, he couldn't eat them. Another uh, ancillary benefit to the cooking of meat is it killed the parasites, right? And like you said, Justin, earlier about the parasites, you know, they're swirling around your digestive tract, robbing us of those precious calories, vitamins, minerals. So once you get rid of the parasites, you're going to be able to feed that big brain, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. And um, yeah, it's it's hard to overestimate how big this was to humanity as a whole. That is the the ability to master fire and carry it with you and and use it at will. Speaking of uh, of that uh, carry and fire, you know, Earth is the only known planet in the universe where you where fire can burn. It just there's not enough oxygen in the rest of the other planets we've studied. Did you know that? I didn't. I was not aware of that, man. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, um, because the, we could break the meat down with fire, the younger children could eat it. You know, we had more children that were going to survive, and um, the human species were really off and running. But one of the one of the other things we haven't talked about is how it improved human relationships. And one of the most interesting studies I found on fire. Uh, as it pertains to social uh, psychological effects, was a researcher wanted to find out if campfires provided some sort of social nexus and relaxation effect. Uh, because if if it did, maybe that would enhance pro-social group behavior. Okay, that was the theory. So he did a study down, and I believe it was Alabama, where he could measure human respo- responses to fire. Uh, Things you can measure like blood pressure, skin uh, conductance, and then EEG tests on the on the brain waves. And what he found was when he had uh, broke his study down into groups and had them watch a muted digital fire on a computer screen or a digital fire with sound or just stare at a blank computer screen for five minutes, the students that heard the fire and saw the fire, even though it was digital, their brains reacted incredibly well to that. They were more relaxed. Their their EEG brain scans were better. Their uh, blood pressure went down, and all this other stuff. So, what was what that reminded me of is something you said earlier about how we're so damn captivated by television and the screens of our smartphones. They think that they think that th- what they found there, the uh, psychophysiological influences of fire. And other, may have an impact on other more similarly multisensory phenomena that we see with people in their damn smartphones. Have you ever heard this? I have not heard that, but that makes a lot of sense. And as a matter of fact, I was I'm glad you said that because I was I had it in my mind to circle back around to you. Uh, you mentioned at the outset of this that everything about a fire, the light it puts off, the heat it creates, and even the sound was beneficial. And I was kind of curious uh, what the benefit of that sound was, but. Uh, much like our TVs, our smartphones, our computers, that combined audio, auditory and visual stimulus is much more powerful than either one of those two things by themselves. So uh, it does make sense that, that that would have some impact. Yeah, and I'll tell you, if, if you're um, you know, of European descent, fire was incredibly important to uh, us as we developed because fire not only protected us from the weather, 
it allowed us to move into those colder climates where that had kind of been off limits before, right? So at first brush, it doesn't sound like that's that big of a deal, but what it meant that we could move with the herds. If they went into the colder areas before we had to kind of watch them go, and now we can go where they go. You know, woolly mammoth take off into the frozen tundra, not a problem. I, I can start a fire. But when we followed them, and this is a really cool cool thing I found out, foods like grains and such that before when we carried them with us for too long, they would begin to mold. When we took them with us into the colder climates, guess what? They didn't mold in those frozen temperatures. You ever thought about that? I have not, man. That's super interesting. So basically, fire allowed us to go to previously unexplored areas uh, like caves because it provided light. It allowed us to go into previously unknown areas because it allowed us to deal with the temperature um fire allowed us to access things maybe uh, maybe even different food sources like honey because you can smoke bees out of a beehive and access that honey it allowed us to cook things that previously were undigestible or bad for us or or maybe potentially even poisonous uncooked to us um man this is such a complex thing and yeah honestly like we i'm not hamming it up for the sake of the podcast here i you looked into the history of this much more so than i did and this is enlightening for me. Well, and, and again, the only one that I didn't hear you go over again, which I think is important, is the increased amounts of productivity. I mean, think how much more productive uh, you can be when you can get up a little bit earlier than the tribe next door to you and take advantage of those early morning hours or work into the evening to prepare your spears and, and things of that nature. So, I mean, just so many things that cannot be overemphasized. And I, I wanted to make sure we have a firm found foundation for why it's so damn important before we get into what are you going to need to start a fire. Uh, so Justin, take it away. Where do we go from here, brother? All right. So we've already talked about kind of the importance of why you should need to, why you should know how to build a fire, why that is kind of essential human knowledge. And there's a lot of, you know, like like we hit on, I'll recap briefly, there's a lot of big benefits to this. You may at some point need a fire to survive through the night, to, to make it till that next sunrise. Um, you may need a fire to heat yourself. Uh, I know a lot of people that have fireplaces in their homes just in case the electricity goes out and they can't heat themselves with that. You, that is no good without the ability to start a fire. And I'm just going to throw this one out there. It is really, really cool to be able to start a roaring fire in your fireplace without having to screw with it for 45 minutes trying to get it going to keep feeding newspaper and cardboard and everything else in there uh, to get it going. It's really nice just to be able to make that fire efficiently. So uh, the things we need, we, we basically need four things to make a fire. And the first one of those things is fuel. And fuel, we can kind of subdivide that into some different into three essential categories, and those would be tender, kindling, and then the actual fuel itself. Do you want to talk about the the distinctions between those a little bit? Yeah, you know, we were talking about a tender bundle, and there's a lot of different ways you can do this, but it, it's got to be extremely dry. You can either, like you said in the show notes here, you can either bring it with you, find it, or make it. And one of the things that I do is I bring it with me. Um, do you mind if I talk a little bit about the kind of tender that I use? Yeah, not at all. We're, we're, uh, we're definitely going to talk a little bit more later on about, uh, the different types of tenders you can, you can find and use and whatever, but yeah, go, go with it, man. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can definitely find it when you're out there, but what I do is, is carry it with me. And the tender that I use, and I know this sounds crazy, is hundred percent cotton balls. 
Uh, actually, I use it's a hundred percent cotton swab that my wife uses to remove her makeup. So it's a, a little round thing. I tear it open and I stuff it full of Vaseline and I squish it through that. Have you ever done that before? Yeah, and man, you cover just about anything in Vaseline and it will burn. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, anyway, so I would prefer to bring it with me and and you know because it doesn't weigh anything. I mean, it's a damn cotton ball with a little bit of Vaseline on it. So it you put them in a little tiny. Ziploc baggie and and go with it. But if if you don't have that, you're going to have to find something extremely dry, right? Yeah, and this should be this should be as small as possible. This should be uh, it, it's going to depend on your fire starting methodology, the tools that we're using. And we'll talk about tools. But if all you're putting out is a very very small spark, it's got to be small enough to uh, to to catch that spark. And then you know, moving on to uh, Moving on to our next step here, it's got to that's it's got to be small enough that that spark heats it enough to actually start a flame. Uh, so that's yeah. And what's what I think you know, tinder and kindling. Can you explain the differences to the two for the listener? Yeah. So tinder is basically going to be your very very small stuff that initially catches, uh, takes that fire from that lighter or that match or that spark from that sparking device, whatever whatever you happen to have catches that and actually holds that fire and keeps a small fire going for maybe a minute, maybe two minutes, not very long. It's our very, very basic thing to catch that fire and transfer it into something else. And then kindling is going to be our next step up. Kindling is a little bit bigger. And if, if uh, once you've got your tender going, you stack a little bit of kindling on there and I'm going to say sticks, maybe the size, uh, the diameter of your thumb, uh, maybe all the way up to, uh, you know, the diameter, a couple inches in diameter, depending on how big a fire you're planning to make. That that could also, once you get up that big, that could also be your fuel if you're just trying to make a, a small fire. But uh, this is going to be kind of the next step up. And then once you have a, your kindling going, you're actually going to put fuel on. And this fuel is actually what keeps the fire, actually what is burning most of the time. We don't want to have to constantly keep chopping up little pieces of kindling and throw them, throwing them on there. If we can throw a whole log on the fire and get that going, that's kind of the goal because that's going to keep a fire for a long time. It's going to be hot, um, that that sort of thing. When it comes to kindling, personally, I try to stay pencil size or smaller. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, it it uh, really, like I say, it depends on uh, it depends on what I'm doing. Um, sometimes when I'm camping, I'll you know I'll find a downed uh, a, a piece of downed tree that's maybe six feet long. And I'll basically just drag that over onto my fire ring. And as, as an end of it burns off, I'll just keep feeding it into the fire until it's all used up. And for that, I'm probably going to need some, some bigger kindling to get that thing going. Um, but kindling also, like your tender kindling, should be dry. And typically, I like uh, woods that burn hot and fast for this. Your softwoods like pine, uh, poplar, works really well for this. Basically really, really dry not and not super dense. Uh, uh, kind of your lighter weight woods. Does that make sense? It does. And I saw something really neat the other day, and I'm, I'm not going to act like I've tried it yet, but I, I'm going to try it. It's taking kindling. Again, like I said, that I already knew I like pencil size and smaller, extremely dry. I agree with you. Pine is an excellent choice. But you can take an, um, a pencil sharpener, carry it with you, put that kindling in there and and then turn it around like you're sharpening a pencil and create your own tender from the stuff you were going to use as kindling. 
I thought that was pretty cool. Man, that's that's real cool. I've never never heard of that. Uh, yeah, and, and a, certainly a never little bitty. Yeah, think about this, Justin. A little aluminum pencil sharpener, right? It's tiny. And there's two openings in it, uh, just in, a little bit of redundancy in case you know the blade falls out on one side or whatever. And you just once you get the perfect kindling, you use it to create the perfect tinder. Man, send me a link to that. I'll make sure, I'll make sure one of those are in the show notes, and I may get one of those for myself and mess around with it a little bit. That's that's pretty neat. Um, and then up to your so so then up from your uh, kindling to your fuel. Generally for fuel, and I grew up with wood heat. I grew up every summer, you know, days after school in the summer and fall or full days of my summer vacation helping my dad cut wood. Um, he, we heated with wood. My parents still heat with wood. And uh, that was always a big part of the summer is laying in enough wood for the winter. And man, just about any kind of tree you can think of. I, I probably cut down from apple trees to giant oak trees to pine trees to you name it uh, for fuel. And generally, here's where you're going to want your harder, uh, your harder woods, your oaks, your um, uh, maples, your uh, apple tree wood <laughs> works awesome as firewood. Uh, generally, your harder, more dense wood. And they're Going, it's going to take a lot more heat to get those going, which is why you want that kindling to be very dry, very fast burning, because it creates a lot of heat to transfer to that fuel to actually get it to take. But once that hardwood, that really dense wood is burning, it won't burn as fast, it won't burn as bright, but it will keep a fire going for a much, much longer time. Yeah, and on that topic, you know, you mentioned that in the summertime, you and your family were collecting firewood, and we do, as you know, we do the same here. I will, on average, burn throughout a winter somewhere in the neighborhood between twenty-four and twenty-eight ricks of wood. And a rick of wood, for those of you listening, it's four foot high and eight foot long. So um, I have a sawmill down the road. And Danny will call me when he's got a pile of oak that I'll, and then I'll go down there and pick it up. Cost charges me about thirty dollars. I can put everything I can get in my old Dodge pickup truck, and then we store it down in the barn for it to cure out over the over the summertime. And I tell you, living since we lived on a farm for six years since I retired from the Marines, I realized why our ancestors made such a big deal about the fall. You know, all these fall festivals that that our ancient pagan ancestors had because you feel that sense of accomplishment when your barn is full of firewood. So, you know, your family's going to be warm. I've got my barn full of hay for my horses. So I know they'll be well fed. We've got all the stuff that we've picked and canned from our garden. So we know that our, our freezers are full and our pantries are full. And it's a sense of accomplishment that I never really experienced before. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I know that feeling well. And on that, you reminded me of something uh, about fuel. If you happen to be camping and looking for fuel for your fire, if you have a wood heater at home uh, and are looking to fill, fill that with, you know, uh, lay in some wood for that, you can't just go out and cut down a tree and bust it up and throw it in the fireplace. It's got to, like you said, it's got a season, it's got a cure. If you just go out right now and cut down a tree and throw it on the fire, it's not going to be good fuel because it's, it's considered wet. It's full of sap. Uh, so basically you want to cut those trees down in the, you know, in the spring, summer, or maybe even the winter before. And, you know, you might bust that wood right then, cut it all up and split it and all that stuff and, and let it cure that way. Or you could just leave those logs on the ground and let them cure 
uh, whole and then cut them up and split them and everything else. But but the point is that wood has to be seasoned. Uh, it's not going to be completely dry. There's probably still going to be a little bit of moisture in there. But uh, if you happen to be foraging for firewood, you want to find stuff that's already on the ground. You don't want to try to, or maybe a standing tree that's dead, that's been dead for a while, if it's small enough for you to push over or something. But you're not going to cut down a tree and use that for fuel. Okay, so we talked about fuel. What's the next thing we need? Okay, so the next thing we need is heat, and that's basically what we're trying to transfer onto our tender to get this whole uh, to get this whole ball rolling. And that's going to come from our uh, our fire starting tools, whatever they may happen to be. Well, we uh, we can talk about those here in a little bit, but uh, we need some heat. And like I was saying with that tender, it has to be small enough. It has to be appropriate to how you're starting that fire. If you're starting it with, like you went out yesterday with a ferrocerium rod, all that thing throws off is a shower of sparks. So you've got to have some fibers that are fine enough that the heat from that spark is enough to, to start that combustion. Uh, and also, uh, Rich, what would happen if you just sprayed that shower of sparks on a flat sheet of paper? Uh, two things would happen, jack and squat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it wouldn't start a fire, that's for sure. Those sparks uh, don't provide enough heat to to get that paper going, to, to cause combustion to happen. So we also have to have some airspace in there because that's another thing fire needs, which is why something like a cotton ball works really, really well. The fibers are incredibly fine, and if you fluff that cotton ball up a little bit, we create enough airspace in there that we get, uh, that we have that cotton ball itself serving as fuel. We provide the heat to it with enough airspace in there. And what we ultimately end up is the chemical reaction of, that, of combustion where we get fire, which fire is basically the gas that's created from the combination of that heat, fuel, and air all working together in tandem. Yeah, and I, I remember a firefighter buddy of mine says, you take away any one of those things and you don't have fire. Yep, uh, that that's I couldn't agree more with that, man. Which which is why when when we're building our fire, when we're when we're laying our wood on, we you know you can't just uh, light that piece of paper and then throw a huge log on it and expect it to take off. So that heat, that's why we go from tender to slightly smaller kindling, which that tender is creating enough heat to light that kindling, and then we step it up a little more so there's enough heat created to ignite that next thing. And on and on and on until you're throwing huge logs on there and that fire is generating enough heat to actually catch that huge log on fire. Correct. So that's a little bit about what we need to build a fire. I guess we need to talk about the tools at some point, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I I, kind of grouped these into three classes of tools, uh, consumable tools like lighters and matches. And, you know, if you're if you're looking for something uh, just to have on hand, to start a fire in emergency, I, I think you could probably do a heck of a lot worse than a 99 cent Bic lighter in your pocket. Um, there's a lot of benefits to it. It's super easy to use. Kids can use them. Uh, there's really, really easy to use. And it actually creates a flame, which is really helpful. You, your tender options open up a lot more when you can actually create a flame. In that case, I could just take that flat sheet of paper, hold it upright, and hold that Bic lighter to it, and it would catch on fire. Uh, whereas I would have to do some work to that piece of paper to get it to take a spark. Uh, I'd you know probably like shred it up and wad it up and create you know as many little crevices and nuances in it as I could. But a lighter will start that right away. Now 
there are some problems with lighters. They're fairly easily broken. They're not terribly robust. And they eventually run out and the, the fuel can leak. All kinds of bad things can potentially, there's a mechanical uh, action in there which can, can be fouled and become inoperable. A lot of a lot of potentially bad things could happen to a lighter or, or to matches. They could get waterlogged. They could get, you know, stepped on and crushed and broken. They could, uh, they, and again, they run out. Uh, none of these options work terribly well if you have high winds going on. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on lighters and matches, man? Yeah, I got two uh, lighters in my uh, little go bag. Um, one's a, a small black bic that I could carry in my pocket, and one's a, a larger one that I normally would use for the house um, because I, it's just a little bit of a redundancy. And matches as well, dude. I'm so sorry, you know. Um, I don't, I don't know, if, you know, if we need to talk a lot about matches, but I carry matches with me also. Yeah, I carry uh, I carry uh, lifeboat matches. Um, they're like these really long matches, with and the head on them is really long. They're waterproof. Um, the ones I have, I, and I'll I'll try to dig them up and throw a link in the show notes to them. Uh, the ones I have, I've actually tested this. I've lit it dunked it in water, pulled it back out. And, uh, if you hold it under there long enough, it'll put it out. But if you just dunk it underwater and pull it right back out, that flame is going to just kick right back up when you, uh, when you bring it back out. But, uh, so it, what that tells me is it should work pretty well in a rainstorm or, or something like that. Um, I want to have an option like that on me. I, I want to have matches or a lighter on me because if I can use that easiest option, I'm absolutely going to everything we're going to talk about from here on out, it's progressively harder to use. Like what? Uh, so like your sparking tools, which which I would say is the next thing. And everybody that's watched, you know, Bear Grylls on TV has seen him use his little, his little uh, ferrocerium rod. He, you know, strikes a little striker across that and it throws off a spray of sparks. And, uh, you know, the, the downsides to this are your tender options become more limited. You have to find something that will actually ignite just from a spark it doesn't put a flame to anything it just throws sparks on it and there's a million different tools like this there are um you can buy that uh the little light my fire fire still that bear grills uses that's what we we use something very similar to that when i was in sear school you can uh um like the little ferrocerium rod i carry on my keychain that we talked about a few weeks ago the little light my fire fire steel um there are the spark light thing that I use just has a little lighter flint in it and a little wheel. It's basically just the wheel and the flint from a, uh, a lighter. There's no fuel tank. Um, there is the, uh, have you ever used a magnesium block, Rich? Yeah, I carry one of those and, uh, that's what I learned how to use in the Boy Scouts. Although, uh, as an adult, when I've played with it, I haven't had, I mean, it's still awesome, but it is probably not. I don't know, man. I've had mixed results with it. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. So, well, if you are thinking about a magnesium block, first of all, I wouldn't buy the one at Walmart, uh, whatever brand. I would find one that's made by Doan Manufacturing, D-O-A-N. Uh, they're widely considered to be the absolute best. They actually make these for the U.S. military for survival kits and stuff. But you have a ferrocerium rod in there that any piece of steel, a knife blade, a I don't know. I, I guess a knife blade would be preferred. Any piece of steel struck down that ferrocerium rod will throw off a spray of sparks. The magnesium block is actually its own tender. You shave off little pieces of that magnesium, and like your the little file on your on your Leatherman or Gerber multi tool, 
that you've never used for anything else. It works great for pulling off a bunch of these magnesium uh, shavings. Then you strike your sparks into that, and that magnesium actually catches on fire. It's a very, very hot uh, flame. So you've got you've got the two things together there, a little tender and a little uh, ferrocerium rod in a very compact, very durable package. Awesome thing about these tools is they're very, very hard to break. Um, even your fire steel, if you step on it and snap it in half, you still have the rod. That rod will still make sparks. Uh, you, ju- you just don't have a handle for it now, right? Well, and this, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're not, not only almost indestructible, but it doesn't matter if they get wet or not. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and the other thing is this. So if you're if the listeners here in ferrocerium rod, it, all it is, it's, it's a synthetic alloy that produces hot sparks. And the sparks, I've heard, can reach temperatures of uh, like f- over 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so it's an amazing little tool. Weighs almost nothing. And uh, you should be carrying this thing, at least in your truck or, or in your backpack. Yeah, and let me let me just throw out a little uh, a little life hack for these things. So... I, I mentioned this in our tools episode, uh, how to how to put together a basic toolkit. If you've if you've got a hacksaw, you probably have some old hacksaw blades. Don't throw those things away because the portion of the hacksaw blade that actually gets used is the middle of it. What I like to do is take those old hacksaw blades and I'll cut off the ends because that one end is nicely rounded. It already has a hole drilled in it that you can put around a string through or a stainless steel chain through or whatever. And that end is still very sharp and it hasn't been used for anything. So for all of my magnesium blocks, I have a hack, a little piece of hacksaw blade that's the same length as the block. It makes probably the best sparker I've ever seen for any of these uh, ferrocerium rod type things because you have multiple teeth interacting with it at any given spot. And if you have a magnesium block, it's an awesome tool to actually create a bunch of magnesium shavings. Just start sawing into that block and catch the shavings in a cotton ball, bird nest, whatever you've got. And it will, uh, it, it works beautifully, man. Yeah. A dry leaf. I mean, any of that stuff. Um, okay. So there's anything else on the sparking. Would you also say Justin, that a technique like, uh, the nine volt battery and, and, uh, stainless steel wool or whatever you call it. So is that a sparking tool also? Uh, that, that one's kind of a little bit of an oddball, but yeah, if you've got a nine volt battery and some very uh, like fine steel wool, you can just push that, put that battery to that steel wool and it will, it will catch that stuff on fire. Yeah. Get it close to tender and you're off on, you're off and going, but I didn't know if that would be considered a more of a sparker or a printed, I guess it would be because it really doesn't fit into our next category, which is primitive, right? Yeah. So, uh, my only problem with that steel wool and nine volt battery thing, I think that'd be awesome if I just found myself in, uh, you know, in my dad's garage and had to build a fire because I could probably, you know, root around enough and find the two of those things. But I, I don't think I would carry steel wool and a nine volt battery for that purpose. I, I think there's better options to, to load your bag up with. But I do think it's worthwhile to know that yeah. technique exists. Agreed. And then primitive tools. Uh, benefits to these is, um, well, let's talk about the disadvantages. They require a tremendous level of skill to be able to use. But the benefits are you need almost nothing to make them work. If you've got a knife you have the ability to start a fire anywhere you go and the, uh, through techniques like uh, flint and steel, which is basically uh, actually finding a piece of flint and uh, uh, hitting at it with a piece of steel, which can generate sparks. These are very small uh, sparks. You're gonna need the absolute best possible tender to catch these and you're gonna need a lot of skill to be able to do this. Uh, I 
there and there are specific flint and steel uh, sets you could probably make your pocket knife work but it's probably not going to be very easy it's 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 going to be much much harder than even having a dedicated flint and steel set that's made for fire starting uh, this essentially never runs out uh, the other thing the uh, one other me primitive method is a bow drill have you seen those rich oh yeah never tried one though I, I have uh, made one before, and it is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly time-consuming. The good news is, if you've got some sort of uh, cutting implement, you can make the and that you know down to as simple as a sharp rock. It's obviously the the lower quality your cutting instrument is, the harder this is to actually uh, pull off to make your your fire bow and drill. But um, this is this is the uh, you know the quote unquote old uh, rubbing two sticks together. There's also some really esoteric things like a fire piston. Have you ever seen one of those? No, never. I don't think I've heard of it. So it's all it is is a a little wooden tube that's closed on the bottom, and the top has a little stick that fits almost perfectly a dowel basically. It fits almost perfectly into this uh, into the tube. So you can you can slowly just close the two together, and all you've got is a little I don't know four inch long wooden stick. But you pull the top out, put a little piece of tinder in there. Uh, you start the dowel into the tube, and then you slap it, and it generates so much pressure that it will create a spark, and it creates enough heat that will uh, cause a spark to be on that tinder. And then you gotta then you gotta worry about like dumping that spark out quickly enough onto some tinder to get it to catch and whatever. This is absolute expert level stuff and if you have the time and the motivation to learn this stuff i don't think it's bad to know but this is not the generalist technique i think uh, you know a, a book of matches uh, and a and some sort of sparking tool or a bic lighter and some some sort of sparking tool probably about all you need but uh, these are really neat things to know but there's a massive investment in time and learning them and i and i don't uh i don't know most of these so no, and really, I don't know that I need to. You know, there's so many other ways to do it. Like, I'm looking on Amazon right now, and there's a primitive fire bow drill starter kit deluxe for 50 bucks. So, I mean, if you want to learn those those ways, they're out there. Go for it. Uh, I don't know that with all the other really cool stuff that that you can do, like the the sparking tools that you already talked about, Justin, I think that and matches and lighters will probably get, get most people there, right? Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, actually, I'm looking at that primitive uh, bow drill starter kit thing right now too. Since you said that, and you know, I think I think if this if you really want to learn this, this would be an awesome thing to buy to learn, and then maybe move up to to making your own. But yeah, this is this is the expert's technique. This is not the generalist technique, is it, Rich? No, and this is a generalist podcast. Welcome to Across the Peak. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, man. That's right. Uh, all right, so let's. Um, Let's go into, let's actually talk about building a fire. Let's talk about the process. And again, we're going we're gonna to start with tinder and, you know, just the basic principles here. Tinder has to be dry and it has to be fine enough to accommodate your method of building a fire. If you're touching a flame to it, you can be a little bit less exacting with your tinder than if you're just putting a spark to it. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So uh, I, I've broken this out into three categories, man-made, tenders, uh, natural, and then store-bought stuff. And, and there's even some accelerants you can use to make it a, make it a little better. Um, first and foremost, though, God, it's got to be dry, whatever it is, the driest possible thing you can find. So uh, man-made stuff would be stuff like paper, uh, dryer lint, as you mentioned, is 
Did you mention that earlier? No, we were talking about it pre-show, and it's um years ago. My wife had read somewhere that about how to make your own your own DIY uh, fire starters using dryer lint, a little bit of wax from an old candle, uh, some newspapers, and some uh, wood shavings, sawdust. So I had all these things. I mean, I have a woodworking shop, so I had tons of sawdust that I needed to get rid of anyway. We like to burn candles at night, so we had plenty of old little bottom parts of candles and and some dryer lint. And I almost, almost forgot. The other thing that makes it a really nice, convenient thing is you take old toilet paper rolls, and uh, you put all these ingredients in there and then cap them off on the ends with wax and, and then roll them up in newspaper, and they work phenomenally well. There's a little bit of time in collecting the stuff and then spending a day probably making about 100 or so of these for to last the entire winter, but it was pretty cool. That is real cool, man. Um, and and for a home fireplace, man, that is that is the way to go. But if you're looking for something to throw in your, uh, in your backpack or, or your hiking kit or whatever, a little bit of dryer lint goes a long way as long as you can keep it dry because it will catch the smallest spark. You, it's it, all, all dryer lint is is the tiny fibers that are sloughed off of your clothing when you dry them, right? Yep. It's like cotton ball. I mean, that's basically all it is. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, so th- there's also some outside the box stuff you can you can think about here that you might might have on you. Um, if you've got a first aid kit, which if you're in the outdoors, you should have your your gauze bandages, your cotton ball stuff like that will make excellent tender uh, tampons. Uh, you can and all these things you got to kind of tear up and spread out and get down to that fine fiber layer will make awesome tender. Um, even wood shavings. You you mentioned this earlier, but uh, this is one thing I like to do if it's rainy or if it's been rainy where I'm at is uh, I'll find a I'll find a, a stick and basically carve that outer layer off and get down to the middle of it. And that thing, unless it's just been raining nonstop for weeks, the middle of that thing, as long as it's a dead stick, is probably really dry inside there. And I can just file off or carve off some real fine shavings off that and uh, use that as my tender. Yeah, that that's a that's a good one. What else? Uh, what's a more what's a more natural? That's the kind of the man-made stuff. What what else we got? Man, there's all kinds of uh, of natural stuff, and you're kind of limited only by your imagination on this. But uh, uh, birch bark is awesome if you live in an area where birch trees grow, and you can peel that bark off. That you can basically just peel a strip off and rub it between your hands. That stuff will catch a spark like nobody's business. It burns really really hot. Uh, cattail fibers. If you break a cattail, have you ever broken a cattail up and uh, seen all those little fine hairs in there? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, uh, dandelion heads, pine bark, cedar bark works really well. Where you can just peel that bark off and again roll it between your hands, and you just got a ball of this these really really fine fibers. Um, dry, real dry grass leaves, pine needles, uh, any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, I, for me, it's it's birch and cedar. If you can find those two, man, you are you're on your way. And it, yeah, and unfortunately, those those things don't don't grow absolutely everywhere. But yeah, no, they, if you can find those things, they don't. Yeah. And pine needles work amazing, which you mentioned earlier. But uh, the neat thing about pine needles, if you are trying to uh, get rescued, keep a bundle of the pine needles there that you're not using as your uh, tender, and you can throw them on the fire, and you'll get some really intense smoke. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Little pro tip. 
<laughs> yeah, and then there's uh, there's store-bought tender, and this stuff probably works the best, probably easiest to deal with. Um, and I love these tender quick tabs because I talked about my spark light in the back in the EDC backpack episode, uh, and I've got that thing packed with these tender quick tabs. They're basically basically all it is is a cotton ball that's kind of optimized. Uh, it's kind of got some stitching around it to compact it really really small. You just fluff that thing out. You get a spark on that thing, it'll burn for. Uh, It'll probably burn for a minute. It burns pretty hot. It'll light some light some stuff up pretty quickly. And there's all sorts of other store-bought fire tenders out there. And then uh, back to your point, there's also accelerants that, we, that you can put on just about anything. Um, chapstick uh, is, is kind of made of uh, you know some sort of wax and maybe some sort of petroleum product like petroleum jelly, Vaseline. All that stuff will burn really, really well. Uh, hand sanitizer. Have you ever done this, Rich? No, huh? Because of the high alcohol content in hand sanitizer, it will usually burn. So sometimes you can just glob some hand sanitizer out and just directly light that on fire and use that to catch uh, catch other things. So I guess the point is be creative with, with what you have on you and uh, you know understand the capabilities of what you have. That's, that's an awesome thing that we don't think of hand sanitizer as being any good for, but it is. Well, I am going to try that when we get off this podcast today, the hand sanitizer one. I had, I don't know why I hadn't thought of that, but I'm definitely going to try that. I don't know if it'll catch a spark or not, but you can take a, you can take a lighter to it and it will, it'll, it'll catch, man. Okay. I'm, I'm trying, I'm in, I'm trying. Okay. So, so once you've got your, uh, your tender, uh, you got to start working your way up with your kindling and for me, I would say the size of your kindling depends on the size of your of your tender. If you've got one little tender quick tab and a few little wood shavings, you're going to want to start really, really small with the twigs that you put on there. And I'm going to say that uh, I'm going to go with the old Boy Scout saying, and I, I know this is cheesy, man, but there, there is an old Boy Scout saying that said, if you can't snap it, scrap it. So it should basically be branches that you can snap in two with, if, if you have to bend it and twist it and, you know, bend it back and forth in opposite directions four or five times to get it to come apart. It's too green. It's not dry enough to be kindling. Uh, also, I'll say the best place to look for kindling frequently is not on the ground. It's frequently on the trees, the, the, those lower branches that are dead that are still on the trees because they probably still have some nice tone to them. They're not all rotten. And also, they're not laying on the ground where they're sitting uh, in all the rainwater that comes off the trees. So they're probably much drier. Yeah, like these lodgepole pines that grow really tall, really straight. Uh, as the branches die off, as it continues up in height, like you said, man, those are the perfect ones to pull off because they're they're dead just waiting to fall off the tree most of the time. Yeah, and uh, pine cones is another awesome thing. My dad uh, has a lot of uh, pine trees on his property, white pines. And he will go through in the fall when all the pine cones have fallen off and collect up bushel baskets full of these things. And the awesome thing, it takes almost nothing to get these things started. And they burn so hot because they're full of pine sap, which is really flammable. Those things will get almost, have you ever done that? No, I'm glad you said that. When it comes to pine sap, that's normally how we start our fire. So I use a, a product for our wood burning stove called Fat Wood. Have you ever heard of it? I have. I uh, I, I tend to not think of that as product. I tend to think of that as uh, fatwood that that you find in the woods. But yeah, tell them about fatwood. Yeah, fatwood is um, when you when loggers would come in and cut down an old pine tree, the stump that was left behind for waste. 
the sap would come up through the roots and just really saturate the the top of the stump. So then you could come in and cut, uh, you know, maybe three or four inches down from that, split all that up and have some amazing kindling that's all natural. And I mean, you put a light to it and it's going. So that's normally what we use. Yeah. Yeah. I love fatwood and I love finding a piece of fatwood out in the, uh, out in the wild. Occasionally you find it where a tree has fallen and it's, it's just this deep red color and you, you can just put a, a match to it and it'll take off. Yeah. That's my, that's my jam for starting fires here in the house. You know, we, we light a little bit of fat wood, let it get going and, and start adding fuel to it. Yeah. So, so, uh, adding on our kindling and our fuel, you want to do this in a way that still permits, permits good airflow. You don't want to lay everything side by side by side with each other. Uh, I would say air on the side of laying stuff perpendicular to each other. So it's over the flames, but so you're actually getting good airflow through there and then uh, get enough kindling going and are generating enough heat. Actually put your, uh, put your fuel on there. Agreed. But also like also being careful not to, not to crush your actual fire, because if you do, that's going to cut down on oxygen flow with a campfire. What I like to do is start my fire kind of to one side of that, you know, everybody's seen the ring of rocks around a campfire, kind of start my fire to one side and lay my first piece of fuel at an angle propped up on the rocks. So it's getting all the heat and it's not depriving any of the oxygen from that, uh, from the fire that's, that's going. Word. Okay, man. Uh, so maintaining a fire, basically, um, depending on what you're using this fire, if it's, if it's just a campfire, you're probably going to want to keep that thing pretty stoked up, keep some wood on it, keep those nice, big, happy flames going. Uh, but for, uh, that's not the most efficient way to do it. Cause you're going to go through a lot of wood like that. Uh, I love nothing more than to get a deep, rich glowing red bed of coals going in my fire, in my wood heater, or just for a campfire. Cause man, that, that will throw off heat for a long, long time. And it basically keep your fire going for a long time. Yeah. And I, I tell you to go back to what you were saying just a second ago on the, um, oxygen, I, as you know, the wood that I get for my fire uh, is it's all hardwoods, oak, mostly oak, about ninety five percent oak. There, every now and then there'll be a piece of two of poplar in there. But what we'll do is we'll stack it up like bookends, so that and allow uh, maybe about an inch in between each one of those slab woods because it's what the guy cuts off that he can't use, and it comes out in these slabs, which are a lot of people don't like to use them for a wood burning stove. I find that they work extremely well. And we'll bookend them and then light the fire and have the fire going underneath. Gets plenty of oxygen. Once it gets going, I got a nice, huge bed of coals. Now I can start laying them flat, and then it'll make it burn longer. So a lot of this, you're really just going to have to work your way through it and figure out what works best for you in your situation, whether you're inside with a wood-burning stove or outside. Have you found anything that is kind of your go-to outside? Like sometimes, Justin, I'll hear people They'll start a fire in the center of a huge log and let that log uh, keep the the air, the wind off the fire. So they'll they'll think about which side of the log they're going to start the fire on to block the wind. And number two, as it burns the center, they just keep pushing in the longer log. I mean, do you have any kind of go-to stuff like that? Uh, no, not really, man. I've tried all manner of different ways of building a fire. I've, I've done the... Uh, have you ever done this where you basically build a little log cabin out of fuel around the middle of your fire? So I make my tender pile. I take two pieces of fuel, may, I don't know, maybe two inches in diameter and lay one on each side. Then I take two more and lay them 
perpendicular and then two more and perpendicular to those. So basically I'm building a little, for lack of a better word, log cabin around the fire and that's all my fuel. And basically once I light that tinder bundle, it just takes care of itself and uh, like it lights the kindling and that lights the wood on the outside. And basically it's just one big self-sustaining thing. But um, am I making sense with that at all? Oh yeah, D- done that many times. Basically, yeah, laying logs in in opposing directions and and lighting my tender and my kindling in the middle of that. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have any very specific techniques with this other than uh, I will say as a kid, uh, one thing that I had to do every morning when I got up was was get the fire going. If if my uh, if my dad hadn't got gotten up before me and gotten it going, and it wasn't. It was very, very rare that I had to get up and start a fire from scratch because you get that good, heavy bed of coals going. Basically, all I would have to do is get up, rake through the ashes, expose those coals, and throw some kindling on there. And there's enough heat in those coals to combust, to cause combustion to happen, to cause a a, a fire to occur, and then just add some fuel to that, and you're you're good to go. Also, if you're cooking on a fire, if uh, have you ever done much cooking on a on a fire on an open fire? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I've done a fair amount in, in, um, in Dutch ovens or man, I, I love to screw around with stuff like this. I've been on fishing trips where, uh, you know, and I'm not a big fisherman at all, but I, you know, been on trips where I've caught a few trout or whatever, and basically just clean those things and throw them on a stick and cook them over the fire. Or, uh, you know, I, I love, man, I love to cook a pot of beans over a fire or stew or what have you. And, we like we tend to think about you know turning a spit over a big roaring fire really your best cooking fire is going to be a good heavy bed of coals where you can kind of control the temperature by moving those coals further away or closer into to your cook pot or whatever the case may be but um yeah like i say the the best cooking fire is not a big roaring fire typically it's usually a good heavy bed of coals that hold a awful lot of heat and there's a lot of other benefits that too you don't have to build a fire the next morning you just root around in there and expose those coals to the oxygen and throw some more fuel on them and you're off to the races again well and i have done some cooking on top of our wood burning stove when the power has gone out for extended periods of time and i'll tell you if you don't have a wood burning stove to heat your house in the winter time uh, good luck when the power goes out we were able to because the top of our wood burning stove was a huge flat surface we were able to, you know, put a pot of beans up there and let them cook all day, uh, cook a skillet full of, you know, bacon or whatever you wanted to, eggs. Uh, so, I mean, this is something that can't be overemphasized as we move further into technology. You know, people are losing these skill sets or even the thoughts about what does that mean to have something like a wood-burning stove in my house? And one of the things is the control of fire. You know, we've done a lot of talking today about how to build a fire, but you know what's really cool, Justin, is being able to put a damn fire out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. You always want to be aware of that, aware of and, – and a couple more things on the safety. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Rich. You definitely want to don't want to exceed your capability, and obviously you want to be aware of the environment. If you're camping, you want to make sure it's not a burn ban or something. It's not exceptionally dry, and if it is, you want to be really careful to control your uh, to control your fire, not build something that's uh, that's too big. And if you're building your fire in your house, if it, it, let's say you're the person that has a fireplace, has a 
wood stove that never gets used and you know it's basically just on reserve it, you know it gets used a handful of times a year and it's just on reserve for emergencies before you build that next fire if you haven't done so i would say you probably want to get your chimney checked out by by somebody that's qualified to inspect your chimney and tell you if it's if it's good to go or not yeah we've actually got a for the first time in six years, I've got a chimney sweep coming in. I'm going to have them inspect everything, put a new gasket seal on my wood-burning stove, and look at everything. And I, I probably should have done that sooner, but because I do not burn any pine, I don't have creosote building up on the inside like maybe some other people do. So I've, I've thought it was okay. But to circle back on the burn ban issue, when I was in Montana probably a week and a half ago up there for six or seven days, we went up to... Uh, Todd's cabin, uh, my buddy Todd Orr, who was attacked by the grizzly bear, which uh, I think I've told you, Justin, he's agreed to come on the show, so I think that'll make a pretty cool show. But anyway, um, there had been a fire up there on the ridgeline, and the the guys had beat it back. There was fire crews everywhere on the mountain that we were on, and they finally said we could come back to the cabin. But it was like 40-something degrees, you know, we're at 9,000 feet or what have you, and the um, we were afraid to start a fire in the wood burning stove because we didn't understand if the burn ban applied to just open flame or to a wood burning stove. So we actually just sit there and froze for a while before we went back into into town. <laughs> that's that's probably honestly that's probably wise, man. Um, but uh, I don't know if you know this, Rich. I used to be a volunteer fireman, and I have seen a lot of I've seen a lot of houses burned down because of poorly maintained chimneys. And like you mentioned, the creosote built build up in there. If you burn some pine, or even if you don't, there are compounds in the smoke that build up on the inside of that chimney. And you get the you get enough of those there, and you get them hot enough, they actually catch on fire, which ends up catching your house on fire. The other thing I've seen, uh, and this one comes a little bit from personal experience from a place that I used to rent, is sometimes you know a fireplace insert might not be installed correctly or whatever. I had a um, or actually my landlord had the uh, the fireplace at that at that place I was renting had the the fireplace inspected and the the guy that inspected it said do not use this fireplace it's installed incorrectly uh, if you do you're going to get smoke uh, into your upstairs and potentially catch the whole damn place on fire uh, so if you haven't used your fireplace in a while I would say have somebody that's qualified to inspect it come out and take a look and and give you the okay to use it because you're literally looking at the potential risk of burning your house down. This is a very, very high risk thing, and we don't think anything about. Oh, I'm just going to, you know, build a little fire in the fireplace so we can sit back and have a relaxing evening, uh, only to find out that that's going to cause you massive problems. Yeah, and just for the listener, you know, I I priced two companies. One was willing to come out and do the chimney sweep in the gasket for I think two ninety nine. I found another company that would do it for two thirty-five. So somewhere in the neighborhood between two and three hundred dollars, it is worth it for the peace of mind. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, man. Because if you look at the downside of that, you're potentially replacing every single thing in your life. At at best case, well, at best case, you're you're you know it gets put out, but you've got to spend thousands of dollars to repair that chimney after it's been on fire. Uh, at worst case, you're looking at potential loss of life, loss of everything you own, everything you've worked toward. And I'm sure your home's probably insured, but uh, filing that insurance claim is not a thing I ever want to have to do to my house, man. No, and my um, 
my aunt's house burned down probably about six months ago. Uh, they had a lightning strike, and they knew the lightning struck close to the house, but what they didn't know is the lightning had struck the house, and it started a fire in the attic, and by the time the smoke alarms went off, the entire um, roof was fully involved fire, and they ran out with their lives, and that was it. So a lot of our family heirlooms uh, that she had, all the antiques from the Brown family, were, were lost forever which is, I mean, the old pictures that we'll never be able to replace are gone. So being able to control that fire um, is, is, is incredibly important. I think we beat that to death. What about maintaining the fire? Well, I, I mean, this just goes to how long you want to keep it. And one thing that you should keep in mind is you shouldn't stop putting wood on the fire five minutes before you want it to go out. So if you're in a camping situation or whatever, uh, you, you shouldn't keep laying wood on the fire until you're about ready to go to bed or until you're about to leave that campsite. You should give that uh, ample time to burn out. And, you know, one way to get that out really quickly is, is uh, to spread everything out as far from each other as it can. So you diffuse that heat. Um, but just to keep a fire going, I would say this depends on, you know, whether you're building a fire outdoors or building a fire in, in a wood stove. And, and outdoors, there's not much to it. It's just keep adding wood as needed and uh, keep everything as close together as possible. In a, in a wood stove or a wood heater, it, it depends on essentially the heat output that you want. And you basically control that by... Uh, locking down your your heater or opening it up to to permit more airflow. That's it's really really basic and it seems kind of primitive when you think about it. But really, the way you control your temperature on a wood stove is just to close the doors and close the damper, which restricts airflow and takes the temperature down or open those things up and let the flames kick back up and generate a little more heat. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, and that's there. There again, that's why I'm going to have to replace the gasket uh, coming up. I was burning the fire was burning a little too hot. I couldn't control it with the dampers that are on there, uh, so we're going to get a new gasket sealed to do that. And that's uh, something you got to got to consider, man. Yeah, that'll let you uh, let let you control your heat and go through uh, a lot less wood at the same time. Yeah, I don't have anything else on uh, maintaining a fire. I mean, um, what do you you got anything else? No, I I think uh, I think that's about it, man. Okay, yeah, man. Let's let's go ahead and wrap this one up. But uh, before we do, do you have a book of the week? I do. It's uh, Before the Dawn: Recovering the Lost History of Our Ancestors. It's by a guy named Nicholas Wade. It's a really good uh, book. What that talks not just about fire, but language and and some of the other things that made us who we are today. And uh, fire has been a big part of that, man. As we talked about this morning. That's awesome, man. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to check that out. I have not. I was not familiar with that book at all before you mentioned it. So, I'm gonna. I'm gonna read that. Yeah, it goes into some genetics and some other things that are my little interest. But uh, it will definitely. Uh, it will definitely be interesting for the reader. I think that's awesome, man. So you want to close this out? Yeah, let's do it, man. Thanks for listening to AcrossThePeak.com or Across the Peak, the awesome podcast that Justin and I put out here for you. Check us out at AcrossThePeak.com for show notes and additional content. Please take the time to rate us and review us on iTunes. We really appreciate that. But more than just a rate or review, we really would like for you to share this podcast with someone that could use this information. Justin, until next week, what do they need to do? Be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. 
You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. Be dangerous.